everyone, it's Justin, and it is my great pleasure to bring you another interview with uh, someone from the show, and this is a big one. Uh, the man in charge of all your hopes and dreams and all your dystopian nightmares from The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, showrunner, Bruce Miller. Bruce, thank you for joining us today. How are you? I'm fine. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And we, we really appreciate you taking the time, and I've heard from the, through the grapevine that you are a listener of podcasts, so I appreciate you uh, maybe listening to ours. Uh, I do listen to yours. Uh, I, I find them fascinating, especially to hear what people picked up and what people think they picked up from episodes. So you can kind of plan, you know, moving ahead, what how subtle to be or how on the nose you need to be or stuff you need to reinforce. It's very helpful. That's very interesting. I didn't think about that. So what what has some of those things been? Just out of curiosity, has there been some things you've been like, oh, maybe we need to be a little more subtle and not hit everyone over the head or we need to be more upfront? One of the biggest things is that there's a, a flashback story where Serena gets shot and, you know, everybody jumped on the idea that that's what made her infertile, which is not true. I mean, oh. she was infertile. Everybody else was infertile. Where we shot her was just a function of we wanted her to be, you know, hurt enough that she could be in the hospital and hurt enough where it's grave, but not, you know, hurt that in the long term we would have seen effects of it nowadays but you know the the placement of the bullet was a medical decision based on our research not anything to do with her fertility and it didn't even occur to us that that uh, you know but that's because five minutes before we were shooting her in the stomach and now we're shooting her in the in the hip and you don't really think about it as oh that's you know that's ovary territory right. but uh, I guess everybody jumped to that conclusion. So that was a surprise. Uh, but, um, you know, there, there there are some things that, you know, some things you want to correct, but mostly it's just a lesson for me about how carefully people watch. It's even for us as uh, as the podcast, doing the podcast about the show, uh, there's all kinds of stuff that we miss or get wrong. And uh, one of our, our more famous ones was that we misheard that June was five weeks pregnant as opposed to five months pregnant, which is what we heard. <laughs> um, so we heard a lot about that one. And uh, so, yeah, it's very interesting to hear people that pay attention to every single little detail. And so it's been something even for us as a show to kind of take into account when we're doing our job. So I can't imagine on your level, you know, writing the show and doing it, what it means for you guys. Well, I'm kind of I'm I'm used to it. But, you know, in some ways it's hard to explain. But over time, you get used to the idea that the only thing that matters is what's on television. So I only have, you know, 52 minutes where I worry about it. And so I try to be pers- really persnickety and precise. We, you know, uh, we try to do everything on the show on purpose, you right. know, that, that when we're making a decision, we're very thoughtful about it. everything from the paint color to, you know, how worn in people's skirts are and all that stuff. But we really do it in a very limited way because we decide quite early on what we're going to, what scenes we're going to shoot and how we're going to shoot them. So, it makes it a little bit easier because our our perspective, our, our field of view is so much more narrow. Everybody else is trying to figure out what's happening in the wider world based on these little clues. I'm just deciding on the little clues, so my <laughs> plane field a little smaller than yours. Sure. That's interesting. It's nice to, get, nice to get that perspective. So what I want to do right now is jump straight into our social media questions because you and I both know the fans are the uh, reason these shows are successful and our podcast is successful. So we I know. like to give them a voice. And so we're going to kick this right off because we have quite a few because you're the man who knows all the answers. So I told people to go ahead and shoot. But um, the first one, which I am very proud of because I had totally forgotten that this was in the book, comes from our Facebook friend, Eliza McAdams, who wants to know where the face butter is. <laughs> Eliza. Um, well, uh, we, you know, it's funny. It made it into a couple of outlines in the first season. The, the story she's referring to is offered 
uh, and the handmaids generally steal butter in the book, so they, and then they rub it on their hands and face actually after the ceremony to keep their skin as soft as possible because they don't have any skin lotion. Um, we haven't used it yet. I mean, it's it's one of the m- many, many details that Margaret put in the book that we have not yet gotten a chance to kind of sprinkle through the sprinkle through the world. But, uh, you know, we're as fascinated by it as Eliza is. <laughs> Uh, next question, and this is a big one. So I have a few people, and what I've done is basically condensed everyone that kind of asked the similar question into one. So I'm going to read their names. Uh, on Twitter, okay. this was from Barber, Barbie Hickey. Uh, on Facebook, this is from all these people. Sarah Charles, Lisa Jones, Stacey Rosser, Yasmin Weinstein, Chrissy Brack, and Suzanne Giblin or Giblin, uh, who all want to know, are we going to get an Aunt Lydia and or Rita backstory? Well, I hope so. You know, uh, we the same thing. You know, we've had Aunt Lydia and Rita backstories in episodes and and talked about them, and they just ended up not us not having time or needing to do another story. It's when you sit down and face a wall of thirteen blank episodes, it seems like a lot, and then you start filling in, and it seems like a very little amount of real estate for a show like this with so many characters. But we are fascinated by um, Lydia's backstory. Uh, we have a couple of different ideas, you know, talk to Ann Dowd, talk to Margaret Atwood, of course. Um, but, uh, you know, the answer, I think, is absolutely yes by the, you know, by the end of the series, but I don't know when. Yeah, and it's very interesting because we did talk to uh, Ann Dowd, and Sarah, one of our uh, co-hosts, is the a amazing teacher. The amazing Ann Dowd. Is a teacher, and my wife is a mm-hmm. teacher, and uh, Angie, who co-hosts on this week's episode, is a teacher. And it was interesting to hear uh, Ann Dowd say how she thought that Aunt Lydia was a teacher, and Sarah was like, no, like a private school teacher, <laughs> like a public school teacher. Also... <laughs> Just to note, Ever Carradine, who we've had the pleasure of interviewing and also um, conversing with on Twitter, she she piped in on this question and said she wants an Aunt Lydia backstory too, and also selfishly, I want a Putnam backstory. <laughs> uh, well, I'll see what I can do. Um, um, I'll, um, I'm sure Ever will get in touch with me on on her own. We have a a, a lovely cast, and that's not always the the way. Um, they are, you know, all pros with tons of experience. They're terrific actors, and they're just most generous and supportive group of human beings you ever want to meet so i you know as you talk to more and more i hope you you know i hope you get a chance to talk to as many as possible well, absolutely well, you know we're, we're efforting for everyone um and everyone we've talked to has kind of <laughs> given us the same sentiment as you have which is that this crew and this cast and the creators is just different from anything they've worked on this project is different from anything they've worked on and it has a very uh familial type vibe to it that everyone is kind of has everyone's back and that the egos are kind of checked at the door and everyone is making this show as great as possible yes absolutely and it's um considering how rough the material is you'd be surprised how open and relaxed and funny the set is it's just you know i i i think it's almost a function of the fact that the work and the material is so rough that everybody uh is absolutely you know not interested in making any more drama sure <laughs> That's that's probably a great thing for you. I, and we've heard, you know, the various ways people, you know, coping with that. And so that's been also interesting to hear. Yeah. Uh, our next question from our Facebook friend, Tia Divine Angel, who has one of these questions about one of these little details that you were talking about. There is a porcelain dog statue on the shelf in Serena's room. What is it and does it have any significance or hidden meaning to the show? The porcelain dog statue, I'm not quite sure where uh, that one came up, but I can tell you a story about some of the other okay, art. Great. There, there's actually a 
There's a collection of porcelain figures in the ante room between her room and the bathroom on the wall. So th- that one figure is 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 kind of you know one of many in terms of the ones that she collects. But all the art on the walls. I don't know if you heard this and. I've said it before in a few interviews, but all of the art on the walls in the Waterford House is uh, looted from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston or from local museums in the Boston area. So we had copies made of a whole bunch of paintings from there. They're all, except for a couple, are the right size. You know, there were a couple that were gigantic in the sure. in the museum, and we couldn't do that. But the more pastoral ones are in, like, the sitting room and the hallway. And then as you get closer to the commander's office, they become a little more radical. And then in the commander's office is even more kind of, uh, you know, less mainstream art, more edgy, something, you know, only a man could handle. And then as we move through the story, we... We have other places where you see art that's even kind of the edgier stuff that you think might have been destroyed, but in fact, people have saved and put up places. So the all the art on the walls has a lot of significance. Of course, the colors in the room have a lot of significance. And these little dolls that she collects have the significance of being, you know, that she's collecting little people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it the actual dolls, I am sure, knowing our art department, there's a 20-page explanation for why exactly these guys in this order with you know from this company in germany you know because there's a a level of precision that that you know everybody brings to the table but the art department is is has amazing amounts of detail to work on and they love it so so i i wish there was a, a more interesting answer but i think the 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 answer is some of the stuff is decoration along a theme and other stuff is there's actual backstory having even talked to just ann crabtree who we've interviewed a couple of times and had the privilege of going down and seeing her <laughs> uh exhibit down there at the Scadfash museum in atlanta just hearing her like kind of have a story backstory even for the costumes <laughs> and the mm-hmm. amazing amount of detail that she goes into i can only imagine that you know the rest of the creators are pushed to do the same and it also makes it more fun. I mean, the fact is, if you're just sewing clothes, that's one thing. But these people are storytellers. And so they tell the story through their department, whether it's the paint on the walls or, or you know, what's hanging on the walls or costumes or makeup or hair. I mean, if you see how how well Eden does her hair, mm-hmm. um, the you know, it's she's a smart girl who has nothing to do with her brain so she'd get pretty good at doing her hair and we looked at uh lots of pictures of how hair you know how mennonites and 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 the amish do their braids and things like that it's all super complicated because they you know it's a way to express themselves so eden has great you know hair game very interesting uh our next question comes from our twitter twitter users evil tracy carol hannah and tia divine angel again on twitter uh they would like to know if we're going to get to see a little greater detail of the scope and scale of Gilead as far as territory goes, but also some of the more inner workings of, say, like you got Jezebels and then more of the Akana people, where the children are. I think everyone's just wanting to really dive deep down into this society, and they want to know if they're going to get more of that coming up. We are you know, very curious about the scope of Gilead. Um, we have tried as a group to kind of figure out the details as much as possible so that we, you know, we have a foundation to go on. Um, and, you know, so Gilead is the lower 48 states, the continental U.S. And, and you know, there was a, a war and the government was overthrown of America. And that's 
what territory Gilead took over, and uh, America is now, you know, two states, uh, Alaska and Hawaii. And there's a flag that you see once in a while, which are, which has 50 stars, but only two are. Most of them are just outlines of white stars, and the other, and there's two solid ones because those represent the states that are still there. And it's still the United States of America. There's still a government. They're just much smaller, and they, you know, don't don't have as much power, and certainly don't have as many nuclear weapons as Gilead <laughs> sure. does. Um, so, uh, but we are definitely uh, going to see more. And and as I was saying before, the show is the show and the book are really uh, strict with point of view. The show's only scary if you kind of are in Alfred's eyes and you don't know what's happening around the next corner and don't really have the capacity to find out Mm -hmm. Um, because who could she ask? I mean, it's too dangerous to even ask a question. So how do you find an answer? You know, because of that, you don't end up getting kind of this voice of God information dump so that you can kind of set your bearings. A part of the show is not having your bearings set. So I think that we get things as people experience them or as our characters you know, are exposed to them. Very unpredictable. So yeah, it's, exactly. It's been excellent. It's one of the functions of having, you know, Elizabeth Moss and it's one of the, you know, who, you know, you can relate to so strongly. It's one of the functions of having Colin Watkinson our, and Zoe White, our, you know, directors of photography. And also it was a function of having Reed Morano, mm, yes. who is was a very successful director of photography and then directed our first three episodes. And she is very, you know, likes to operate the camera herself. And just by chance, she's about Lizzie's size. Mm. And so a lot of the camera angles at the beginning are from about Lizzie's height, which really changed the show, you know, especially when you're in a crowd of people. It's very different to be... Uh, you know, you're, you're with your character, but you're really with your character right. when you can only see what they can see and you can't see over people's heads and stuff like that. So that really kind of helped us cement a visual language to go along with the point of view on paper. And, you know, it, it's it's worked very well, but we try to, you know, be strict about it because you it, it it's one of the things that gives the show its tone, its spooky tone is that sense of kind of blinders on, you know, like they have to wear those... We, we call them wings. They're mm-hmm. uh, the the blinders that they wear on the street. So it kind of ties into the perspective and theme of the show in general. Absolutely. So a couple more social media. Um, one of our uh, Instagram fans, at Handmaid's Tale underscore fan, wants to know, what was the hardest scene for you guys to shoot, and uh, when does production begin for season three? Production begins for season three at the end of September. We just convened our writer's room uh, about a week ago. I'm overlapping. I'm finishing up episodes 12 and 13 from season two <laughs> while I start to break season three. But that's just the way, the way of the world. Um, and so, uh, so it premieres then. You know, I can tell you it was not the ceremony scene uh, the first time we had to film that. I was, you know, worried and it's so emotionally tense and the actors at that point don't know each other very well. And, you know, they went into a room with just the director to figure out this very private scene. And all I heard was like seventh grade giggling coming <laughs> from behind the the door because, you know, they're trying to figure this out and it's, you know, ridiculous. And so, you know, it's like, where do I stand? Where does my leg go? All that kind of stuff. And they were all so wonderful about it. So it was not that scene. I would say uh, a scene that's upcoming 
um, that has to do with the birth of the baby. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that we do in the cold, and I would say that the scene in the at the beginning at Fenway Park on the gallows was mm-hmm. really, really hard. Um, but uh, there's a you know scene with Jeff Lizzie later that has to do with the birth. But the the one that you've seen so far is the one where they're holding rocks in the rain. Oh, that okay. That was the hardest. I would imagine that they would, even though the you know they're not holding them for as long as the character's supposed to be holding, they're still having to shoot that repeatedly in the rain, holding a rock out in front of them. Yes, it isn't a rock in most of the scenes, luckily, but it doesn't. <laughs> it's not. It's not easy to hold your arm out like that anyway. Sure. Um, and it's you know the water is warm that we're sprinkling on them, but it's not. You know, it's still coming down from a rain rig that's 85 feet in the air so it's falling awfully hard and there's a lot more water than it would be when it's raining um, for us to be able to pick it up on camera so that was really hard on everybody um, and a long long miserable day and you know as as spectacularly patient as Lizzie and, and Anne and everybody else all the you know actors who have speaking lines are. We have a set of background actors who are pr- pretty much play the handmaids all the time. You know, the, there's 90 or so women that we use as our cadre of handmaids, sure. and they are troopers, man. It's hard. I mean, it's freezing and windy on those gallows, and it was you know soaking wet and raining, and they're holding the rocks out for hours, and they are unfailingly excited and happy to come to work. I I don't know how they do it. Yeah, I remember when uh, Madeline Brewer was speaking about doing some of the colony scenes, being in the in, in the bar, and it was freezing cold. It just sounds like some of your location shootings were uh, a little a little tasking for some people, which I can imagine. Yes, they they are. I, I you know we shoot in, we shoot in Toronto in the winter, and it's very cold. And you know, on the upside, they're wearing uniforms that are supposed they're supposed to be wearing them those clothes in the cold. So it's not like they have to be in a beer commercial where they're in a bikini on the beach and it's really, you know, 40 degrees out. <laughs> they're in what looks like weather for clothes for the weather, but that doesn't matter. I mean, it's yep. freezing and windy and you're outside and um, it's, you know, it's, it's brutal. And that barn in, partic- in particular, excuse me, the barn in particular in the colonies was, it was very cold up there. And Alexis uh, and, Maddie are, are just tough as nails. I, you know, you, you wouldn't, you, you know, they are tough down to the core. Um, and uh, you wouldn't think that acting requires so much steel, but it really does. That's amazing. Yeah, it looks, it looks every bit as hard as I can imagine it is. Uh, last couple. I know it looks fucking freezing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so last question. Um, and this is something I think everybody wants to know. So in the second season, episode four, uh, the final scene is June is Nick finds June somehow out on the ground, and there is some debate going around um, about how she got out of the room onto the ground, uh, whether she jumped, whether she fell and she passed out, or whether and this is my favorite conspiracy theory that Serena pushed her. Um, I only heard that from one person, but I thought it was just amusing <laughs> as a concept. So, what do you have to say to that, or can you give us any um, enlightenment to that? I was listen, you know, you listen with kind of dismay that people, you know, that you seem like there's something so obvious there that you tried to slip in. And then it's like, oh, well, you know, I didn't even think that she would have jumped out her window. So um, the, this, the, the, it's supposed to be that she just wandered out. She went downstairs, you know, she lost a lot of blood and she went downstairs and, you know, wandered outside like a dog to die, that she didn't jump out the window. She, 
Um, it was just bad editing choice on my part to shut cut from the window <laughs> shot to her laying outside. It, you know, there are other parts of that scene where she ends up moving around the room after that. That would have been a wiser choice on my part. But uh, the story is that she she sat up there till she started to feel like she was passing out, and then she wandered downstairs. And we do try to mark everybody in the house that no one's out and about. You know, that there's a path for her to right. get out. But um, that was that was the uh, that was the idea that she, um, you know, and it was very much like an animal, you know, who, you know, just just wants to, you know, curl up and and die alone outside somewhere. Interesting. That's uh, that's great insight. So that was you the know idea. that that is something that because uh, for me and I think it's plausible. I was like, oh, she jumped out the window because just screw it. Because <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I think yeah, know, no, absolutely. It's one of those things where there's so many possibilities just due to the circumstances that you could have so many, you know, ways to go with it. But that's good. I appreciate you yeah. clarifying that. I know people will appreciate it. <laughs> All right. So um, and theoretically, I mean, the windows don't the windows don't open tall enough to get out. Ah, so. There you go. All the I inside info we need that we could only get from Bruce. We appreciate it. All right. So a couple other things, some non-social media. So we appreciate all our friends on social media and all the fans of the show checking in with us and uh, appreciate you answering those questions. So some other questions that, you know, we had as a podcast. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Father's Day's coming up this weekend. And you being a guy running this show that is about a lot of feminist and female issues. Uh, talk about your father's uh, input in your life early on and how he really feeds into what you uh, became as a person and ended up doing on this show? You know, very much so. I grew up in a in a very close family, and I have three sisters, no brothers. So I think that, at least in some small way, kind of uh, helps you understand kind of, you know, at least a little bit of how uh, women move through the world. I think, it, you know, it's nice to have sisters, and I have three really smart interesting women who are very different from each other. Uh, and so my dad was in a house, you know, surrounded by women. He grew up in a house with two sisters, you know, and no brothers, you know, he had a house with three girls and a boy. And, um, and my mom was very, uh, you know, early first wave uh, feminist uh, and, you know, a stay at home mom. And it, you know, I think my dad's respect for all of those people around him, all the women around him, you know, which was just unquestioned, you know, it wasn't even a decision, you know, the, the way that he respected my mom and my sisters. So I think that that is kind of the, the biggest lesson that I bring forward to the show. But, you know, my, you know, the way your parents raise you, you know, just the fact that they treat you like a grown up and a thoughtful person and you, you feel supported, especially when you go off to do something that I went off to do. My dad, uh, you know, went to work every day and got a paycheck at the end of every two weeks, I think. And I don't, you know, I, uh, for most of my career have bounced around from job to job and having your parents, my mom's passed away, but my dad, uh, you know, having parents who support you in that when your life, you know, and, uh, you know, seems itinerant, uh, it, it's wonderful to have them, uh, not, not question what you're doing. Um, and you know, I have, I have three children of my own and, you know, you're living a real life and supporting people, but you're still working in a freelancey way. Um, and so just kind of having my parents, my, my parents, and then my dad support me so much, uh, in that, you know, it, it, it makes this all possible. You don't, you don't do it without the support of your, uh, parents and the model kind of 
of how your dad is a dad and you try to kind of, you know, I think most people either try really hard to emulate their parents or try really hard to do everything the opposite of what their parents did. Sure. Uh, and I'm lucky to be in the for- former category. Same. That's fantastic. I would assume that that kind of informs, talk to me about how that informs you as being the showrunner of this show and having uh, your writing staff and all the creatives that you are in charge of. Uh, has that affected how you treat other people? I would assume it has. Oh, yes. I mean, I think the the, the, the strange thing about being a showrunner is that you get promoted to it from a job that is nothing like it. I mean, you, you're a writer, you're a writer, you're a writer, and then you're managing, you know, a, a $150 million company. Uh, you know, and it's, and it's before you have none of that. You've just been writing scripts and doing whatever. So, I mean, I think it's true in lots of businesses, you know, where, you know, you do your podcast, you do your podcast, and then someone says, hey, do you want to run a network of podcasts? And all of a sudden you're managing people and doing all these things that you don't have to do to do your other job well. Um, and so uh, I think the biggest influence of my dad and that my dad ran a, a small business and he was the boss. And learning kind of that that actually takes work and takes thought and you actually have to study to figure out how to manage people properly. I you know, I, I went into this when I made the transition to being a showrunner. I certainly didn't know very many happy showrunners. Hmm, they all seemed to be miserable, have miserable lives. And so I tried very hard to say, okay, well, how can I do this and not – I mean, who wants to do it if you're going to be miserable? It just right. doesn't seem like worth it. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of figuring out how to manage creative people. I mean, I'm sure that comes up with you all the time and what you do. I, yeah. You know, there's – uh, there's a, a, a woman named Twyla Tharp who was a, a, a dance, uh, you know, a choreographer, but she also ran dance troops and she wrote a series of books about how to manage, you know, a bunch of dancers. Sure. <laughs> you know, how do you manage the, you know, because she's a dancer and a choreographer, but she's also running a business and trying to make payroll and trying to get people to show up on time and all that stuff. And it was fascinating. So, you know, there, it's, it's kind of not a big area of, of teaching people how to run a business, but it ends up, I think these days being a lot of what you do is trying to manage people who are creative and try to get their best work out of them and also have them feel like they're contributing, that they're not being milked by the creative machine and then be discarded. Really treating those people, making them feel like they're truly valued in what they're doing is probably key to all that. And also making sure they know they're shooting with live ammo, that if they say something and I like it and it goes on TV, it's going to go on TV. It's not like there's 65 people who are going to say no between here and there. There isn't. And so, you know, it's like you open your mouth and it's on a podcast. It's the same thing for me. you got to make sure people know that, that it's actually, you know, we're not – it's not school anymore. We're actually making a TV show. So be careful what you say. (laughs) (laughs) You never know what's going to end up on the screen. Uh, So you never know what's going to end up on screen. Talk to me a little bit about uh, just this show. Obviously it's a heavy show, heavy topics and given the time of everything and the politics of today and life in general, uh, what, what have you really taken away from this and how has it changed you as you've gone through the process? Uh, I think I, I think I um, definitely, have and this is I think a function of Margaret Atwood's book and really the, the reason the book is so popular is that it makes you look around at the the small you know people call them microaggressions but the small things that happen the small misogynistic racist you know sexist just you know intolerant violent things that happen that you don't 
you, it's hard to recognize as part of a growing pattern when they happen to you individually because it's you know you know they may happen to you once a month or once a year or, or hopefully never but um, you know you see them happening around you and it's hard to put them into context of what this means what what does this mean in terms of where our society is moving and I think that that's the the biggest effect that it's had on me is I notice those things so much more um, and not just because I'm you know coarsely and and you know completely unfeelingly looking for stories in other people's misfortune, which I certainly am doing because that's my bread and butter. But uh, the, uh, you, want, you want to, uh, for me, it, it helps me kind of, A, a it, it recognize kind of the small things that are adding up to big moves in culture. But the other thing is just learning from an incredible, smart group of women, you know, a little bit about what it's like to go through the world as a woman, um, which you you know, as, as much as you have women friends, you know, and, and you, know, I'm, you know, I'm married to a woman and, you know, I have sisters and everybody's very open, it doesn't, you know, you don't get down to these conversations until you sit in a room with people for 12 or 13 hours a day and really kind of say, what does this stuff feel like? What is, you know, what would you have in this situation? And it also doesn't work when you only have one example. Mm-hmm. You know, the one of the issues with diversity in the writer's room is you're trying to to add more voices, but but in some ways adding singular voices, you know, doesn't help so much because you're adding just one opinion on things. And so, you know, we're very much, uh, you know, the, the, one of the great benefits of our writer's room is that we have all, you know, it's all women, you know, except for, you know, uh, me and I think one other man, um, you know, it's, it's so there, it's not a singular voice and, and the level of disagreement is just as interesting as the level of agreement amongst the, women on the staff about certain things that, you know, seem to be part of a woman's experience, but boy, it's different for every woman. So uh, getting a little bit of a sense of the diversity of what it's like to be a woman in the world and the diversity of your experiences. And then, uh, you know, and, and definitely um, kind of looking, I mean, I, I would really like our show to be irrelevant. That would make mm-hmm. me incredibly happy. Indeed. That would make all of us very, very happy, but. Not so, not so much the case, but uh, that's a whole other podcast. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> we I'll wrap it up because I know you got to run. You got some writers coming over and uh, gonna keep on putting out some good stuff for us to watch on the television. So, talk to us briefly, if as much as you can, about what you think the future holds. I know you have said that you could see this show running for ten seasons, um, which I think some people thought sounded crazy. But I had to remind everyone I talked to about this that you wrote for the show ER, which was on for fifteen seasons. And I thought did one of the better jobs I've seen in television of transitioning from those early characters into the newer characters. Uh, so talk about that experience and how you're using that here. And then also what the future holds in general and how much you can tell us about what the future holds for the show. Uh, well, uh, the experience on ER was very kind of instrumental in helping me understand, uh, you know, how, how you make a show that's going to go on for longer than you think. I mean, um, I know that on... You know, ER early on, they had a moment of panic after three or four episodes because they said, oh, my gosh, we've done all the stories that take place in an emergency room. We did a heart attack story. We did a car accident story. We did a, you know, a, a labor, someone going into labor story. Those are the only things that actually come into emergency room. What are we going to do now? We're done, you know, four episodes in. Yeah. And then they realize, oh, it's a show about the people. It's not a show about the medical conditions. And then you have 15 seasons. But that's a big change. Uh, of perspective, but it makes you realize that there's a bottomless well of stories on a show like ER. 
Um, this this is very different. I mean, I look at this show as you know chapters in a book or chapters in a story, and so you want it to kind of have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you know end at a at a place that's natural for this story. And you know, honestly, as I get in, you know, I have days where I think, oh, this would be a lovely three season show, and we should end at the end of three. And then I there are days where I wake up and I'm brimming with excitement and ideas, and I think, wow, let's just go on forever. So um, it's incredibly uh, wonderful, beyond wonderful, to be in the position where you actually have those conversations with yourself and might have some choices. In terms of what the future holds, I mean, I I don't know about you, but I would so watch the show about the Nuremberg trials in in Toronto. Oh, for sure. Uh, of Serena and the commander. I mean, I and and I would watch a show about you know, uh, Alfred and or June and Nick, you know, uh, running away to the wilds of California, you know, with their baby. So I, you know, there's lots of different shows out there. Uh, and I found that, you know, when you start thinking about the book, there were times in the book where we took a sentence and made it a whole episode. And there are times where you could take a sentence and make it a whole season. There's one sentence later on about how the purges of Gilead, how, you know, they kept turning over the government and everybody would get killed. Well, I'd watch a whole season about the purges and the political <laughs> situation of Gilead. So in some ways, you know, I'm super curious. I really, I like this world and I could noodle around forever. Um, but noodling around is not necessarily dramatic television. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I feel like we're we're following Alfred's story. It's June's story. It's The Handmaid's Tale for a reason. And so uh, that's what we're telling is what her experience and the experience of the people she touched was like in this terrible, tumultuous time and giving you a window into what it was like for her to live through this time. And so I think that that's really my limiting factor is is – the character of Offred and the character of, you know, and Lizzie Moss, that, you know, it is The Handmaid's Tale and there certainly could be a show that was The Ant's Tale and there certainly should, could be a show that's The Commander's Tale, but this one's The Handmaid's Tale and so that's where we're focusing our story. I would assume that it's going to be one of these things where as long as Elizabeth Moss will let you keep writing stuff for her that we will hopefully keep seeing it on the screen. Uh, she is, I, I cannot tell you, um, a pleasure to work with anything I write, even when I think no one can do it, she can do it, you know, and she's also just one of my favorite human beings on the planet. I, I, you know, I'm very, I'm very lucky to be working with her. She really is just a good, a good friend and a great person and an incredible professional in addition to being super talented. So, uh, you know, and a great, uh, executive producer as well which is a new a new job to her that she's taken to quite handily absolutely she seems to be taking to everything quite handily she not only does all this but she is one of those people that when you look at her resume of work seems like she never sleeps so she seems to be getting a lot of shit done i, I can tell you right now she doesn't so she doesn't ever sleep so last that, night i was talking to her at three in the morning about music <laughs> choices so yeah oh. she does not sleep i don't know how she does it but she doesn't sleep. Speaking of a whole other show that I could do myself, because I'm a music junkie, and the things that you do with the music on this show just intrigue the hell out of me, um, and a lot of people. <laughs> so I could do a whole show on that. But we know you got to run, and we appreciate you taking the time. And from the bottom of our podcast hearts, and all the people that listen to us and watch your show, thank you for creating such a show that is so dynamic and intriguing, and uh, keeps the public conversation about very important issues. Uh, alive and well. We do appreciate that. And uh, we did have one final um, Instagram user uh, goes by the name Ann Crabtree that said she has a question. How can yeah. that much genius be in one brain? 
heart emoji. <laughs> uh, well, my question would be right back at her. How much? How can that much genius be in one brain? I mean, she should look in the mirror. She's uh, Anne Crabtree's our our wardrobe designer and and is a miracle worker. I mean, the the the, the world that she's created and keeps creating. I mean. You know, there's amazing stuff in season two, and there's amazing stuff coming in season three, all from that particular department. Uh, but she's um, she's a revelation. So I think right back at her. Where's the how does all the genius and go in that little head too? Well, thank you, sir, for joining us today, and uh, hopefully, maybe we'll talk to you again down the line. And if you see Elizabeth Moss or Alexis Bledel rolling around there anywhere, just uh, say Mayday was cool. If you want to be on the podcast, you should totally do it. I will I will pass the good word along. Thank you so much and, and thanks for everybody for watching. We are I am always it's always a pleasure to hear what people are thinking and, and we wouldn't be anywhere without such we have such not only attentive fans, but they are the discussions are almost to to a to a one thoughtful and interesting and smart and not you know, that people complain about how, you know, their shows get talked about online and I find that our fans are, you know, you know, educating me all the time. I mean, it's such a respectful group. So, so thank you very much for for continuing that, you know, on your podcast. So, uh, but yes, I'd love to talk to you again when things when things calm down six or seven years from now. <laughs> exactly, I was going to say I don't know when that's going to be, but uh, yeah, no, keep doing your work, keep doing your thing, and we will keep talking about it and promoting it. And we appreciate your time. So have a great day, Bruce, and thanks again for everything. Justin, thank you so much. Take care. Bye. <laughs>